Doc Power Hour is an hour-long show dedicated to discussing, analyzing social, political, economic, cultural, and international issues that confronts various communities all over the country, as well as nonfiction books. We are going to be lively, informative, power-packed. Mm. We are dedicated to delivering relevant, interesting, entertaining information to our listeners. Thank you for joining us on Doc Power Hour. Doc Power Hour is supported by the Doc Bookshop. The Doc Bookshop is one of the largest African-American-owned bookstores in Dallas-Fort Worth. And we have a lot of events. You know, we're in COVID-19, you guys. Mm -hmm. So we cannot do a lot of things that we ordinarily do in our 4,000-square-foot store. But mm -hmm. we can service you by going online. You can visit the Doc Bookshop. We keep it updated. We keep it fresh. We do everything to just bring books to you, you know, the old, the hard to find, and the new ones. So we stay very relevant relevant for you in this COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. I, let me tell you guys, I have a special guest. And he doesn't probably know I've been stalking him since I got the release uh, the book, The Organ Thieves, and I put it on our, our page and everything because I wanted people, I thought this was so important to, for people to understand, to see. So, um, again, I welcome Chip Jones to the show. Let me tell you a little bit about author Chip Jones. He has been reporting for nearly 30 years for the Richmond Times Dispatch, the Roanoke Times, Virginia Business Magazine, and others. As a reporter for the Roanoke Times, he was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for his work on the Pittsburgh Cold Strike. I might have massacred that, you guys. He <laughs> is a former communication director of the Richmond Academy of Medicine, which is where he first discovered the heart-stopping story in the Oregon Thieves. Chip Jones is an award-winning journalist and author. His books include Boys of 67, From Vietnam to Iraq, The Extraordinary Story of a Few Good Men. It was named the top biography of 2006 by the Military Writers Society of America. His book, he has book Red, White, or Yellow. He is here on Doc Power Hour to talk to us about his new book, The Organ Deed, the shocking story of the first heart transplant in the segregated South. Chip is with a, 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 a great publishing house. I don't even want to go down the history of Simon and Schuster, what I know them to be, um, but they are, are friends and they are great. Their history tells them their commitment to extraordinary information. And so I want to go ahead. Let's go ahead and jump right on into this. I want to talk to you about the Oregon Thieves, but before I do that, I'm going to talk about The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. She published in 2010, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. If anybody knows, she was an African-American mother of five, was diagnosed with what was to be a fatal cervical cancer. At John Hopkins, the doctors harvested cells from her cervix without her permission 
And if you guys don't know, you probably know Oprah did a movie on Henrietta Lacks. But mm -hmm. I want to go and say the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks for this book, they describe it as it meets get out. It is on steroids. It is high <laughs> and potent, this book. And it is a landmark investigation into the racial inequality of the core of the heart, excuse me, the core of the heart transplant race. Mm. Let us open up to the shocking story of the heart transplants in the segregated South. Let us bring us up to speed of your new book. Well, first, Danya, I mean, it's just such an honor to be here. There's so many great things about your bookstore. And from Simon & Schuster, you guys have a real national uh, footprint. So it's an honor to be here and to, to join any, any of your audience and, and readers. So just thank you for letting me letting me come, letting me be here. And uh, do you want me to do you want me to start in with a little bit of the book or? Uh... Yeah, we gave a, a magnificent intro to your background as a journalist, and we just want to start. Just introduce us to this shocking story of the first heart transplant in the segregated South. Okay. Okay. Well, um, I'll start with just a very brief reading, uh, which takes us to 1968, shortly after the assassination of Dr. King in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, and this is how the book begins. It's chapter one, Case of the Missing Heart. In late May 1968, Doug Wilder was in his law office on a tree-lined street in Richmond, Virginia. He was winding down from a long day of work when the phone rang. They took my brother's heart, the man on the other end of the line exclaimed in horror. As one of the best-known African-American trial lawyers practicing in the state capitol, Wilder was accustomed to taking random phone calls day or night. Accusations of rape, robbery, and murder were not uncommon, nor were other desperate pleas from mothers and fathers seeking help for loved ones who'd run afoul of the legal system. Even as halting steps towards progress had begun to bring incremental improvements in schools, housing, and jobs, his home state of Virginia was still moving at a snail's pace from under the heavy burden of centuries of discrimination. But taking a man's heart from his own body? Wilder had never heard of such a thing. I don't understand what you're talking about, not having a heart, he told the caller, William Tucker. What do you mean? What happened to it? He started taking notes as Tucker described a deeply disturbing series of events that had just unfolded over the weekend. It all started when his brother Bruce went missing after work on a Friday. It took a series of frantic phone calls prompted by an insider's tip to finally locate him at the Medical College of Virginia, MCV, on Saturday night. Then some bureaucrats hemmed and hawed before finally delivering the shocking bad news. His brother, who'd been rushed to the hospital with a head injury less than a day before, had died only a few hours earlier on an operating table. Bruce's body had been claimed and taken to a funeral home near the family farm. William was given Bruce's final possessions, among them his driver's license and business card. His business card. 
William realized it was for his shoe repair shop, only a few blocks from the hospital. Why hadn't anyone called him sooner? A day later, still numb from the news of his brother's death, William began the hour-long drive to the farm. He wanted to personally break the news to his 80-year-old mother, Emma, and the Bruce's teenage son, Abraham, who lived with her. First, though, he would check with the local undertaker about the upcoming funeral. William's best laid plans were shattered, though, when he learned more shocking details of his brother's treatment in an operating room at the Medical College of Virginia. William Tucker's ordeal started with a hush call from a friend inside the hospital. Something's going on with Bruce, the friend whispered. William put down a pair of shoes he was working on. It was early Saturday afternoon. He asked his friend to speak up and explain himself. His friend whispered something about a heart operation involving Bruce. Then the line went dead. William stared at the phone and laid it back on its cradle. What was that about? He tried calling the hospital a couple of times but couldn't get a straight answer. It took him a few hours to close up shop and drive over to MCV. By then it was after 7 p.m. When the hospital finally sent out some men to talk to him, he asked them a simple question. Where is my brother? William, a polio victim who used crutches, braced himself for the reply. Bruce was dead, he was told, and you'll need to make funeral arrangements. Nothing was said about an operation or anything about Bruce's heart. That right there, I read that, and that was devastating. That was heart-wrenching. That was insensitive. insensitive. Mm -hmm. It was on another level of, of indignity and dehumanization that African Americans have experienced from the onset of the Middle Passage all the way through and after Jim Crow and post-racial era. And so, um, you know, to find, to discover that information and bring it to light, I really totally appreciate you doing that. Um, and to get to this point, of this dehumanization that was African Americans were still experiencing, I think we have to do a service, a justice, of really unveiling the history of Virginia. Mm -hmm. And I, listeners, I am going to take. We are going to get there. Bruce's story is so extraordinary, but I think it's important to understand the climate in which that took place and so i am going to venture down the road and talk let's mm -hmm. talk about let's talk about it you know mm -hmm. richmond became the largest slave trading center in the upper south yeah. and it was a large in the slave trade you know we paint the picture uh, you paint the picture of the town square the square and how it was used for the economic structure of Virginia. And you defined it and you described it as a peculiar mm. institution. Let's talk about mm -hmm. um, the slave um, slavery in the state of Virginia, specifically yeah. Richmond. Yeah. Well, Danya, you, you studied history <laughs> and I'm a journalist, so I, I told you before we talked, I, I, I come at this with all humility, okay? Um, but what I did, what I've done for a living 
as an investigative journalist is try to learn a lot of stuff I don't know and should have known sooner. Um, but one of the things that uh, I learned as I went from what happened to Bruce in 1968, I tried to figure out how did the hospital get to this point where something like this could happen. So I really would try to go back to his origin stories. And as you said, um, by the time the teaching hospital or school medical college of Virginia was established in the 1830s, by then uh, the slave trade was very active uh, next to New Orleans. I think as you said, in the upper South, Richmond was the place that they had this, this place that was called Devil's Half Acre down in what's called Shaco Bottom. That's below the state capital. All of, for your readers and listeners, all of this is within like a mile of each other. So as a writer, I try to set the book in a way, and, and I actually have two maps that I got made by a very good artist, just so the reader can understand just how close, how interwoven uh, systemic racism and slavery were. So there was this huge slave trade going on in the 1830s around the time the, the hospital started. And um, the I found in the archives there, uh, with the help of the archivist at the medical school, um, the, the original letters that were written by a, a young ambitious doctor who wanted to start the medical school. He wanted to compete with Thomas Jefferson's medical uh -huh. right? And I bring that out in the book. So there was sort of a college competition going on. Uh, UVA, University of Virginia, is about 70 miles up the road west of Richmond for, for people who've never been in Virginia. And so this guy, uh, young ambitious doctor, Augustus Warner, uh, felt he could do better. And what was doing better, quote unquote, you know, I, I put air quotes around better, uh, was to try to offer more hands-on uh, anatomy courses. And why was that? Well, that was because that's, what they, that's the way they did it back in Europe. That's the way they did it in England. So all of, in the young, in the early days of the United States, the, uh, the white uh, medical schools and, the, and their all white uh, medical students, they wanted to have the same kind of access to, to hands-on uh, work because that was the only um, scientific work that wasn't just book study. So this turned into this, what I found just gruesome Slay, uh, uh, underground uh, uh, body snatching, which started in Harvard, at Harvard in, in the United States in the late 1700s. It was in New York City, at Columbia, on down the East Coast, Penn, every place in the United States that had a medical school did the same thing. And what they did was they preyed upon uh, cemeteries of poor people and often Black, free Blacks in New York, as well as enslaved uh, Americans in the South. And there were, you know, some slaves probably at that time in New York too, I think. So at any rate, what happened was uh, I, I wrote, I wrote this, uh, this letter that um, the, the founder of the hospital, Augustus Warner, he bragged what, from the peculiarity of our institutions, materials, for dissection can be obtained in abundance, and we believe are not surpassed if equal by any in our country. The number of Negroes employed in our factories will furnish materials, 
furnish materials for the support of an extensive hospital and afford to the student that great deseridium, Latin word, clinical instruction. So he's bragging, in effect, that we can dig up a lot of people who've died at work, factories on the in the fields in Virginia, and and it's just a terrible tragedy. And but it was the reality in Richmond from the 1830s up into the 20th century. And again, I'm telling you how it came to me. You know, as as someone who who hadn't studied as much history as you probably have, which was like an African American you know, culture and history is like, wait a minute, I was born in the 20th century. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It stopped right before the, the year my dad was born in Joplin, Missouri in 1915. Uh-huh. That was right before this stuff was still going on. I, I, I'm telling you, I just like, when I learned that, you know, the, the book started out with me looking at the heart transplant race. But when I started looking at what happened at Bruce Tucker I, and, and then the, um, the shameful history of American medical education, which was built on the bodies of black Americans. And I learned that the story went like from here down to here. And it's been that way ever since, talking about it. If you guys are just now tuning in, I am on with Chip, author Chip Drones. He is talking about his book, Oregon Thieves. And you should be able to click a button somewhere along the way. If you want to go ahead and purchase a book, we have discounted. We're very competitive. We got the audio. If it's an ebook, audio book, and, and it's in hardcover, go to our website and you can get the book. He has just went over. The history, not the total history, but some of the history that led up to the issues of the first heart transplant and the the, the mindset of a lot of Virginians. So you're talking about a group of people that were actually considered shadow property. Mm-hmm. And we all know shadow property is, is so much subjugation and dehumanization mm-hmm. to your your overall humanity and so mm-hmm. we're going we're painting this picture just seeing seeing how the gruesomeness has con, uh, continued forward and even you know he was saying 1916 but you know still today with a young man um, and somebody's going to find a young man that he was found wrapped up as a wrestler, he was found wrapped up in a mat at his school. And this was like five years ago. And so we still see elements of organ harvesting that is very much relevant, prevalent today. And so I think this book brings forward that conversation. We need to continue that conversation, that dialogue, uh, just that whole, you know, what you would call medical, medical apartheid or what have you. Um, so, you know, there's so much as we unwrap this book and I'm, I'm promising, I'm promised not to keep you him all night because you guys it's power packed. So you have to go and get this book and we can mm-hmm. talk about it again down the road. But um, we're going to go over to political and economic, you know, as we journey down. But before we get that, I wanted to bring something interesting, you guys, to the forefront that I saw in the book that talked about the medical center in Virginia, where a lot of this, you know, the first heart, heart transplant took place. And they called one of the buildings the Egyptian building. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it caught my eye because I understood the medical practices, you know, um, the stolen legacy by the Greeks in uh, 
Egyptian and then to bring this to the forefront. Now you guys, I'm not you now you know I could probably dig deep in terms of the weighing of the heart to determine your mortality, but I'm not gonna go there. <laughs> so I just want you to know just your comparing contrast to the um, ancient Egyptian building. You know, I know you're not diving into history with the medical center. Can you just, you know, give a brief overview of that? About the Egyptian building? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And and anybody who, who, who reads the book or comes to Richmond, they can uh, visit the Egyptian building. It's right across Broad Street from the state capitol. It's down there on the medical grounds. And, you know, Donya, I found I made it, you know, like every writer has the ground, whether it's a novel or a nonfiction book, you know, the ground, the ground of the story. And like with a uh, wonderful book you mentioned, Henry, uh, or Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. I mean, that you're in Baltimore and then you have the uh, South Side Virginia, which is very much part of that book. Uh, but the Egyptian building is ground zero for the organ thieves. And the reason it's ground zero is because it was built in the 1840s uh, as a uh, expression of what it was called then Egyptian revival architecture, very fashionable. Uh, you know, like the nearby church where I used to go in downtown Richmond, um, I think St. Paul Episcopal uh, near the capital, I think it may have been Egyptian uh, or it might have been Greek revival. I'm not an archaeologist, I'm not an architect, but all those revivals mm -hmm. were, and they brought this architect down from Philadelphia. And basically, what I think is really strange about the Egyptian building, I mean, it actually looks off kilter in a way like they use different ways trick of the eye thing so it's kind of like a narrow a narrow kind of uh setting i still even today kind of gives me the willies um but the real reason to get the willies about is what went on inside and that is is where um they they had a a, a worker who, who was black his name was chris baker and he lived there for many decades and like many uh, uh, hospitals of its day, especially in the South, he was known as a body man. And basically, he was the guy that went out from the Egyptian building over to the pauper field or other uh, nearby uh, graveyards that had predominantly black uh, uh, burial. And he went out and he met white grave robbers. They were called resurrectionists, uh, which is a strange term when you think about it. Um, and, and then they would bring back the bodies uh, at night and um, get them ready for, med for medical students. Okay, so that's what the, in the Egyptian building, he, they did that. He lived there until 1919. Now, now, I could never get an exact date when he stopped doing this, but I know it went up right, on, along the, right around 1900. Because uh, on the positive side of the story was John Mitchell, who was a crusading black editor of the Richmond Planet. And he called out Chris Baker in his, in his newspaper. And he, and he had people following them uh, around to stop these grave robbers. And, you know, when you're looking for rel historical relevance, um, I've often said that what happened with the Black Lives Matters movement with, with phones and like kitchen uh the police or whoever doing misdeeds was very similar to what uh, John Mitchell was doing uh, at his time and, and, and showing up. Like he showed up once at the, uh, when the state prison, that was another place where they would take, uh, had executed someone and he, in, he interfered with the, uh, with the use of the body. 
So the Egyptian building was the place where the deeds were done. And, and the last thing I guess I could, <clears throat> that your reader, your listeners and readers might be interested in is, when I started talking to the, to the historical uh, archive people, like, why did they have, why did it look so strange? And they didn't have many windows. And they said it, it was on purpose. It was to scare people away. And um, that's why when I first interviewed Doug Wilder, uh, who would go on to represent the family, he told me, you know, in the 1930s and 1940s, he was warned by his grandma, you know, don't go down by that hospital because the night they call them the night doctors. Mm-hmm. Now that's very common, as, as 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 you and your you know your listeners and readers might know that around the country there. And I've been I've been I keep learning. I'm a I'm a lifetime student because in many many interviews around the country I've heard the same kinds of suspicions about the medical establishment exist today because of those historic uh, in, historical injustices. But the, that's that's what the Egyptian building was, and it's still there today, and they still use it. But not not for not hope not not stealing bodies, but they still use it for lectures. That, you know, that brings us right into right down where we need to be is we're talking about Bruce Tucker. We have got to talk about that heart transplant. And the recipient of Bruce Tucker's heart transplant was a white businessman. He was Joseph Klett. Mm -hmm. Did this fact reinforce the prevalent distrust of white doctors within the black community? And you kind of touched on it. Yeah, I, no, I, there's no question. And, you know, one of the things I have in the book is a different coverage of the story from the black press, Richmond, Afri- Af- African-American, known as the Afro and the dominant uh, white newspaper, which I later worked at, full disclosure, um, not knowing anything about this. But basically, um, when, uh, when, when it was learned that and it took about a week. Well, it took four days approximately for Bruce Tucker's name to even get mentioned because the, the hospital was covering it up. And if it wasn't for actually the white newspaper Times Dispatch and a guy I know, and he's in the book, Beverly Orndorff, he dug it out uh, of the uh, of someone and 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 actually wrote the name of Bruce Tucker. They weren't going to release his name. Talk about say his name. They were never going to say his name. And he was just going to be this guy, like an invisible man. And he had, and so, um, yes, for sure, to answer your question, for sure, the, the fact that it, it went into a, a white man uh, who died only eight days later. So it was, an ex- it was an experiment that went wrong. And he was, this man, Joseph Clutt, knew nothing about where the heart was going. He was completely out of it. Um, you know, he wasn't told, you know, one way or the other who, the identity was of the person whose heart was going to get. But really the heart of the matter is, pardon my pun, is, you know, Bruce Tucker, he he was a he was a working man. He he worked full time. He supported his son down in the country. Um, he was just he had a drink after a work week. He he had an accident. He fell off a wall. He was with some friends, hit his head, he was rushed to the MCV hospital emergency room. He was conscious when he went in there. Um, his vital signs were were normal for someone with a head injury. Um, he was treated for the head injury, but within less than 24 hours, the doctors there saw him as a potential donor. And when they made a token effort, and I underline token, I, some, some people who read the book argue with me about this, but it was like, as I read, started the book, 
his brother's card was in his pants and no one ever had the sense to pull it out and go get his brother the next day. So token effort to find, uh, to find family, you know, they sent a cop car, you know, it's white cops, black neighborhood. Nobody wanted to talk to them anyway. It was a very tense time. It's like now, you know, this was after uh, MLK died, you know, and it was, you know, there'd been riots up in DC and tense. Everything was very tense, you know, and there was no way, there's no way the police were going to find his family anyway, but they neglected to wait until his family had a time to come see him. And however you, however anyone wants to say whether he would have survived, it doesn't, it doesn't matter because there was no respect shown for him. And also, uh, Danya, there was a law on the books that you had to wait 24 hours before you could do any experimentation. But the surgeons, they kind of uh, pressured, they definitely pressured uh, a young medical examiner, got him to give him the okay. And, and that's how it happened. I mean, it was just, it was like, and that's why in the book, I tried to use a time like minute by minute uh, analysis that I did using court records, using notes, using interviews I did. Um, because there's no like one record of what happened here. My, my book is like three years of, of looking under every place I could find of investigative reporting. And so what you find is, you know, he, you did some you did some great research in terms of because mm -hmm. I want to bring more of humanity to Bruce mm -hmm. Tucker, you know, yeah. that he comes from a family. He yeah. had siblings. He stayed and they were a working group of people. They were. And, you know. Even times were tough. And his brother, his brother owned a shoe store that, that repaired the shoes of the doctors. Why irony, I, how ironic. And he was just a hard, he come from a family that just worked. They didn't ask, they just knew they had to, they, under, they understood, understood the remnants of the past. And so he was a working man that yeah. had an unfortunate in, uh, incident and he was not expecting you know, even his friends were innocent. You know what? He, what we would call a probably concussion today. Exactly. Um, exactly. You know, he went in there and it was it was heart wrenching. And you capture the grief and the outrage mm. Mm. of William Tucker upon learning that his brother Bruce's heart mm. and kidneys yeah, were missing kidneys. from his body. Would you let step shed? And you did this a little bit to shed light on the stigma fears and superstition surrounding a violation of dead bodies among respectable working poor blacks and that's why i say the humanity and mm -hmm. dealing with just that whole superstition of you know the working poor blacks mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah and um the, and the thing i tried to well it's really i'm glad you i'm glad you noticed that donya about trying to established that he, he was a man and had a life um, uh, the because when his name was going to be never be released when the reporter released the name he was actually ostracized by the surg surgical department for bringing trying to trying to say that this guy was a real person so you, 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 the, the word is dehumanization is exactly what you're saying and that's that's how people, you know, in all kinds of situations, I think, in life, justify uh, unethical and immoral behavior. And in this case, it's so strange. And 
you know, and we can we can go to you know the trial that the, the family uh, endured four years later. Um, but ultimately, Doug Wilder, uh, who later became, became, as you know, the first elected African American governor in the United States history, and his first in Virginia. Uh, Governor Wilder, you know, early on, he told me, you know, he knew when he took on this case that it was going to be hard because he was the David and they were the Goliath. And they were not going to lose. They, the white establishment, were not going to lose a case to a black man and with a black attorney who's saying that you're saying this is not a historic, historic uh, uh, event that we said it was. And again, this is the value of history to me and for your readers, is history is when you take a look at um, events that were portrayed in a certain way and, and you're trying to tell more about it and give it more context. And we're, and we're going through the same thing nationally, right? We're having a national opening about history. So I hope people can find uh, the book as a useful tool in that overall context, but in the particular context of this story, Wilder went up against the most uh, world-class experts in brain injuries that the hospital could bring in. And he had very little you know, money to, to pursue the case. It was almost, as he sort of said, it's kind of a pro bono case for him. He, and, and, and he was not equipped. He did everything he could uh, to fight for the family. But um, I think the most telling thing early on when I was doing my research about the humanity of this was when Mr. Wilder told me he, he would never forget the look on William Tucker's face when they lost the civil suit. He said it was like all of the racism that he had been on, you know, he'd experienced, had been on his shoulders his whole life, just came crashing down. You know, and, and that, just that, just that moment stayed with me. You know. I mean, if you're just tuning in, he was just talking about the attorney Wilder, Wilder, who is a graduate of Howard University, mm -hmm. HBCU. And so we're just going over his experience and taking on the case of Bruce Tucker and the injustice that had been done to him, similar to what Brian Stevenson did in Just Mercy in his book, mm -hmm. taking on this injustice that has befallen unknowingly to African-American people and bringing up a broad, broader converse, conversation. Mm -hmm. You have the injustice here and then you're dealing with the medical and organ harvesting, what have you, for the uh, contemporary uh, conversation that we deal with today. And just, just those two comparisons, whereas Wilder, he did not win. No. Right? He, he did not win. But I think his passion and his drive with very little financial resource, resources shed the light when there has to be done something with the medical uh, community. And I want to say, you know, I, I'm happy you brought up water, but I do also want to bring up, you know, Bruce Tucker had a son, Abraham, and he had declined to talk to you, I think, in regarding this book. Mm -hmm. uh, what would you like to say to him about the tragedy and crime and impact of the his father's death? And, and, yeah. and he yeah. did he just say, "I'm not going to talk to you," or "This yeah. is too much for me to deal with"? Was it an emotional yeah. aspect? It's a good, very question. Before I'll answer that, uh, one more thing I should say about Governor Wilder: he did view one thing as a positive, and uh, the legacy of the case uh, was that he did manage the next year to help write a new law in Virginia. Uh, to create uh, a, 
it's the first brain death law, which would avoid this kind of situation in the future where doctors could just declare unilaterally brain death. There had to be certain uh, aspects to it. So, so Mr. Wilder did find that, you know, felt that that was Bruce Tucker and William Tucker's legacy. Now, about Abraham Tucker, um, for your readers who get to the end, end of the book, it's actually the afterword to the book, and it's a, a kind of a different uh, uh, approach I took. I wrote it in a first person because, like you said with Henrietta Lacks, I felt like the reader is going to know, well, going to have questions, you know, like, well, what about the family? And, I, you know, I did everything I could to talk to the family, but the truth is that other members of the family, the, the story is so horrific, you know, one or two people told me early on they really didn't want to talk about it. And I didn't blame them, you know? I mean, I'm a reporter, so I'm, I'm going to ask, but I'm going to respect that. So, so basically, to get to your, to your question is, when I finally found uh, Mr. Tucker, and he has since gotten the book, and I haven't, I, he has not called me, and I have a, a, his, his, his cousin, uh, Shirley, I'm actually in touch with down in Florida, and I actually plan to get in touch with her this week. Uh, it was hard for her to read the book as well. I tried to say, look, your father is part of medical history and deserves recognition. And I know this was hard. He was in high school. Then he lost his father. And um, he had to testify four years later. And I had to really work hard to find him. He wasn't. I wrote him a lot of letters. I called every Tucker person named Tucker in Dinwiddie County, Virginia. There's still people there probably saying, who's the Chip Jones guy? You know, I mean, I call everybody. Um, and finally, I just got in my car, and this is what I get into in that afterward. I just got in the car, and I went down there, and I finally found him in the woods, living by himself. Uh, and he he was polite to me, but he said in those in certain terms, "I'm sorry, no sale. <laughs> I don't want to talk." And and the term that I mentioned to him at the time is that I really thought that. I thought he'd been victimized by what the medical uh, professors now call historical trauma, which is just a, a way of saying anybody, a person of color or, or a person from different religions, um, whatever, can suffer a trauma from the medical system or any, any system, but especially medicine. And I think that my sense to it, uh, Donya, was this, that he'd been so traumatized by this and carried this burden with him his whole life. And he didn't know me. You didn't know me, you know, and, and, and even though I was trying to say, hey, I talked to your cousin Shirley, I've talked to this person, that person, I visited the church, you know, that's how I, I found him actually, was just literally I was on my knees wiping uh, weeds off of um, gravestones, and I ran into Wilbur Johnson, who's a wonderful sexton at the church, and he put me in touch with Shirley, and um, but I knew that he was a reclusive person. Uh, so I waited a long time when he didn't, never wrote me back. I couldn't get him on the phone. And I just said, this was right at the, I had to finish my book. And I really just got in my car. So the afterword is about that. And I tried to present it just very straightforward, you know, not spinning it, you know, not saying, you know, you know, heroic writer trying to do anything, just like, here's how it happened. And, 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 and I think the reader can take away their own, make their own, um, mm -hmm it's about why didn't wouldn't he maybe he will and there's a movement now in richmond among some people i know and i'm i'm trying to help as much as i can to see if we can do something to change the lack of recognition 
Some people said, you know, name a wing for Bruce Tucker. Some people said scholarships. Mm-hmm. You know? that, 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 is, that is a great point to move it forward. And if you mm-hmm. just, you know, similar to what they've done with the Equal Justice Initiative and create those scholarships, to create those people that exactly. can move the conversation forward and mm-hmm. offer scholarship in his name. Mm-hmm. You know, I you know, I sympathize with Abram just knowing what has happened mm-hmm. to his father and knowing that right. whether or not justice was truly served and in his heart, will he ever find that redemption and justice? It's very hard and it's a very a painful thing to deal with. So, you know, I can understand when we say, what would you want to say? It's those things that redemption, redemption is a reflection, reflection of justice that have not been received. So, exactly. um, as we move the conversation forward, I don't want to run out a lot of time because I know um, there's a couple of questions. I think there's some questions online, too. Um, mm. But in 1968, mere months after Bruce Tucker's death, MCB performed its second heart transplant <laughs> surgery, yes. this time with a black man as a recipient. Yes. Would you tell us about Lewis Russell? the black American who became the face of MCV's heart transplant program and the media coverage that it received. What does, just tell us a little bit more about the Lewis Russell situation. As we journey along from Bruce Tucker, you're just now tuning in, we're we're engaging with the second transplant under Mm -hmm. this medical center in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Well, Lewis Russell was a wonderful character and and i just loved writing about him and decided he he had to have his own chapter because after everything that was done wrong to bruce um this was only three months later and lewis russell was a basically an industrial arts teacher from indianapolis indiana and there's now a school there named for lewis russell and his wife uh thelma was a wonderful very fashionable woman she was the first black woman to be a department store uh, buyer in the Midwest um, and they, you know, great family. Um, and, but Lewis suffered from very terrible uh, heart conditions, but um, he needed help. And he happened to be seeing a, a cardiologist in Indianapolis who went to the Medical College of Virginia and who knew about this uh, experimental transplant program where there were great, they were great surgeons, you know, and so he, uh, and what they could do for him well, he winds up uh, uh, three months after what happened to, to to Bruce and all of the cloud that was still hanging over what happened in that operation. And Doug Wilder is saying, you know, I'm, you know, threatening a lawsuit. And, and well, th- Lou, I always say Lewis Russell was the gift from the public relations god <laughs> to MTV because he was a tremendous uh, interview, upbeat. He recovered. Um, he went home, uh, he lived for, I think, another seven years. Uh, he became the chaplain for the Indianapolis Police Department. He kept teaching. He was a, he was a spokesman for the American Heart Association. He was in People Magazine. He was just a, a wonderful individual. And he also, part of this, in terms of the racial aspect, is MCV finally, for, his, for, the, for their second transplant, asked permission from the donor family. And this was a young man, a young black man who got, 
who had suffered a, a fatal head injury in a, in, a, in a crime of some sort. But anyway, there was no way to survive a, a gunshot to the head. And his family agreed to it. So it gave them a chance to uh, try to um, put a better face on their heart transplant program. And Lewis Russell was, you know, happy to do it. I don't think he knew much about blues. You know, I often thought about that when I wrote the story. But um, I loved reading accounts in like Ebony and Jet and then the predominant. Right. I mean, he was he was he was a quite a, a star, you know, of his day. Well, I'm 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 happy you dedicated a chapter in your book, The Organ Thief, to Lewis Russell. That was amazing and very much a shift in the conversation of the dehumanization. Mm-hmm. Now, this you know, try to search for some forgiveness because we know mm-hmm. we've done some wrong, so a level of wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, moving on, I I, I want to bring forward because it. We're running out a little bit of time, but you guys, it is so this is so <laughs> relevant to what's going on now, and it's so pertinent that you get this book so we can continue the conversation. You probably have a buy button, I'm sure you do, where you can click and buy, and we have it discounted for today. So you get the book; it's discounted. Um, and we'll keep it discounted towards the end of the month. But if you can go ahead and get the book, because I might, um, they might change the doc discount. So try to get that today. Um, the Organ Thieves calls attention to the 1994 discovery of the skeletal remains of mm-hmm. untold numbers mm-hmm. of bodies dumped together below the foundation of what is now the Virginia. Commonwealth University's Medical Center. Mm-hmm. Would you tell us about the disturbing incident mm-hmm. and the in the uh, the antebellum roots? You know, and you know, we kind of say there are echoes, and the ancestor mm-hmm. reaches out and just kind of shed light on that. Can you give us that discovery? What that? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to mention that. I'm glad you did mention that because. Even today, that discovery of more than 50 skeletons of what were later analyzed through DNA testing at the Smithsonian were believed to be enslaved Americans from the early days of MCV. That situation has not been resolved. And in honoring Bruce Tucker, I'm in touch with some people who are who work on what's called the Descendant Community Group, who have honored those bodies already, and it's very Afrocentric. They've had they've had some you know rituals that are, are based on African uh, you know rituals, and 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 it's based on what happened in New York the same way with the African American cemetery there. So there's there there's a, a strange intersection between Bruce's story and this, but what happened there in 1994. It was front page news, uh, and it and I remember it when I was mm-hmm. at the paper. That what happened was some there was a huge uh, construction project at the medical center campus, and some construction workers were horrified when they hit upon a a a a, a section that had a lot of bodies. It just jumped forward. It turned out it was what was called a limb pit, and this is an old well. And back in the day, in the 1800s, a lot of, around the country, a lot of wells were used for weird purposes. They used them for dumping grounds and they for all kinds of stuff. But they did that at the hospital. And these were the same, probably the same, some of the same bodies that had been experimented upon that had been 
dissected, as we were talking about in the early days of the medical school. And um, it, it was about 50 feet, 60, 70 feet in front of that Egyptian building we were talking about. Mm. And wow. what happened was it should have been, it should have been preserved as an archaeological site to honor those people. And then, well, instead of doing that, and I interviewed the archaeologists who were on the scene, and they gave, and the readers will see a blow-by-blow description of what happened. The leadership of the university ordered it to be covered up within two days because they were losing like hundreds of thousands of dollars a day because the construction project had stopped. So rather than following proper archaeological science, they cut. They said, "You guys got to stop." They found them on like Friday, and by Monday they had to stop their dig. It should have been like it, like nearby here in Williamsburg, you know, with the with the original uh, sites of Jamestown and the original the first. It should have been treated with that level of respect. It wasn't, and, and you know, for me, for me, Danya, that moment brought it again up into modern times. Like, mm-hmm. when are we going to treat people with respect? Mm-hmm. And, and there was no respect given. It was covered up. And they don't know how many bodies are still down in there. So literally, the, the, the skeletons are in the foundation of the Contos Education Building at the, at the Virginia Commonwealth uh, School of Medicine. It that is just money has always been king in this country and it is and it has you know it is over the humanity of people and that's sad and that's why the awakening that is in the organ thieves is so important because you really have to put money that you know this country may hand over but money and you talked about New York and the mass graves that were in New York and the burial grounds that are never discovered, you know, in New York. And mm-hmm. so we 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 are always in this situation where you're up against as African American people, a financial, a financial institution. And so we yeah. have to at sometimes this is the conversation that mm-hmm. needs to shift and bring the repair if you will, and the reparation back to a people Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. have been dealt with such grave injustices. So it's really, you know, it's really trying, but it brings us back up to where we are today. Mm -hmm. And we're dealing with Mm COVID-19 and this crisis. Tell us a little bit about how does the current COVID-19 crisis reinforce the ongoing reality of medical injustice for Black Americans? Well, COVID actually isn't in my book. You know, it happened after, and and I started writing. I started writing this book before any the Black Lives Matters movement started. But it, there is there there are a lot of intersections in in the uh, history of what's happening right now. And I would say it, the short answer is just the suspicion of treatment of Black Americans by the medical establishment already you know, early on created uh, suspicions about people getting, there was a guy here who was interviewed in the Washington Post uh, who was told about the Tuskegee syphilis, syphilis experiment, you know, by an older 
gentleman and said, you shouldn't go get the COVID test because it, you're going to have a Tuskegee happen to you. So these stories, and like you mentioned, Henry Lack, and that's Bruce, Bruce Tucker. It's all part of the same um, uh, set of, uh, of tragedies and injustices. And I think that what I've heard from medical educators is that they want to make this type of discussion part of the training for doctors today. And I've heard around the country a lot of medical uh, students and not and black and white and different and different backgrounds want to make uh, an awareness of the injustices and the class system that exists. So that's really also what we're talking about, you know, uh, the lack of power. Um, so it ties into COVID, I think, in the sense, well, and also, obviously, you know, black people have suffered by far, you know, two to three times the death rate of white people from COVID. Um, Latina, uh, the Latinx population is the same way because it's all tied together. You know, if people are living in crowded situations and the virus gets shed easier. People are frontline workers, on and on. I hope that answers the question. Oh, definitely, definitely, because it is it is a post situation. After you've written your book, here we are with this pandemic, mm -hmm. and the superstitions are very much real. It is mm -hmm. real within you know my household, and I and I think it, it crossed the lines of everybody seeing that don't want to deal with the experimentation aspect right. of this this crisis right now, right. and so yes, mm -hmm. it very much touched on it, and I think it helps us to understand or to put into perspective of where we are today and those superstitions that why these superstitions exist. And yeah, <laughs> they're, 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 you know they're based in real experiences. Yes, you, know, you can call them superstitions, but or but when things have a basis in reality, right? You know, the evidence else. thereof. You know, there's <laughs> we got this evidence in before us. Right. So, um, before I have to let you go, and I apologize, I got people saying, Wow, what have you? I want to talk. You know, we had this incident where. And I don't know how much you know about the story, but understand the story. I'll just say, you know, with the Georgia teen that was killed, and, and by the time he got mm. to his the morgue, all his organs was going gone. Mm. And so, again, we're still dealing with those issues today. But what is your ultimate goal or hope for organ thieves? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope that it is really you're helping me tonight meet the goal, and so are your your listeners or your readers. I'm hoping that it helps to shed light on, on a tragedy and an injustice. So my first goal was just to get the name Bruce Tucker out there because it's never been out there. Okay. So I, I feel privileged. It's a, it's a privilege and an obligation for me as a writer to do that. So that's the first thing. And I hope that, you know, moving forward, I would hope that, you know, readers understand um, that they deserve to be treated with dignity um, so wherever you are in the healthcare system, you know, you deserve to ask questions and to know, um, you know, what your situation is in, in the plainest terms. And I've often had conversations with people especially about end of life uh, type of planning in, in, any, in any life. It's a good thing to look ahead uh, because if you don't take um, power over your medical treatment, like your your, uh, you can have an end-of-life care. It's called an advanced care doctor mm -hmm. that, that doctors should be able to help people with. Because you don't want to have 
you know, care. You could be kept alive forever. I mean, we're living in this technological age, but but the ethics have not always caught up with the technology. And, and so I would hope that people could apply the lessons of the book, you know, to their own lives and think about, well, how, how do I plan, you know, my life? How do I make sure, you know, most people aren't going to face obviously having a heart taken out against their will, but you might face, you know, maybe a treatment that you should have that you need and ask for it. And, that, and, and seeing this, we're getting into the realm there, a little bit of politics because, you know, healthcare is a human right. And yeah, yeah. And he, you know what, you guys, and we didn't even touch on that. This, that's why I says power pack because he deals with the politics and the economics of the African American uh, communities after um, um, uh, uh, Reconstruction, post Reconstruction. He deals with the politics and economics. So again, you guys, this is power packed for anybody. If we want to start the conversation of change and everything, we have to understand the history and the stories of the past. And I always say, you know, a lot of people don't believe I got this quote, but I do have this quote. And it is, um, freedom wasn't passed down through the generations in your DNA. It has to be fought for each and every day your mm. freedom it is not passport in your dna mm -hmm. and that is a quote from ronald reagan and oh. i said if ronald reagan <laughs> in, his, in, in a privileged class yeah can come up with something mm. like that we should do no short and to continue to fight for freedom and liberation and humanity and that is mm. comes with the information that you you bought forward with the ordinance. These, these are some things that we have to deal with and convey with. I want you know, I want to thank you for your uh, time. Where can people find you? You know, where can people find Chip Jones? People can go to uh, www.chipjonesbooks.com. That's my book page. Um, and you can also, uh, you can also go to the Simon and Schuster website for the, the organ thieves. And we, you know, I will to say to educators, there's a free uh, study guide for the book that Simon Schuster can provide. And it's it's a pretty amazing document that a teacher designed. So, yeah, that's how they can find me on my book website. And, uh, you know, this has just been an amazing conversation with you. I really appreciate it, Don. It's really, it's really a pleasure and a blessing to... Yeah, I, I think I thank you for coming on this platform. I thank Simon Schuster, the friend of Jackie Robinson. So anybody's friend of Jackie Robinson. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, shout out to Chadwick Bozeman who played Jackie Robinson. Right. So we you. are deeply connected here. That's right. <laughs> and so again, you guys go to our website, www.thedocbookshop.com. Order the book. We will have ongoing conversations about this. I'm going to share the video again because I think this interview was so important. And mm. this is what Doc Power does. We bring relevant and pertinent information and we separate it out from all the other things. Oh, there's millions and millions of books out there. But we have to, it is our responsibility mm. to bring the pertinent, the well-researched information to the forefront. Again, listeners, I thank you for tuning in. Get the 